0: Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. You've heard of Shirley MacLaine. She is an award-winning actress uh, who has uh, an interesting belief system and um, has a home not too far from here. She did an interview with the Washington Post in which she stated, quote, The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love is with yourself. When you look back on your life and you try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have Is working to the consummation of your own identity, and that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Well, I have to disagree with Shirley. I don't think it's a pleasurable journey through yourself. I think it can be a pretty painful journey. There's an old poem that says, look around and be distressed, look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus, be at rest. We're going to look at the journey that Isaiah took through himself and find that to be true. It's a journey he took in a vision he had with God, and he saw God, but he also saw himself, and we notice his reaction. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah cried out those words because he had an encounter with a holy God. We're doing a series called Rediscovering Your Foundations, and perhaps we ought to do a message on rediscovering your pastor since I've been traveling so much. But <laughs> We've done several studies so far. Let's just bring you up to speed. The first study we did was on the importance of truth itself and the alarming amount of spiritual illiteracy, biblical illiteracy that exists, the importance of knowing the scoop, knowing the truth. Our second study is how God reveals himself to humanity in general revelation and in special revelation and how it is we can know God. Our third and fourth studies focused on the Bible itself, the transmission, the accuracy, the inerrancy of the Bible and why we ought to trust it. Then the last two studies, study number five and six, we looked at Psalm 139 at the attributes of God. His omniscience, He knows everything. His omnipresence, He is everywhere. His omniscience, He can do anything. And tonight, we will focus on what is the least discussed attribute of God, at least by people. And that is the holiness of God. In fact, it's what many consider God's least attractive feature. How, however, in saying it's the least discussed topic, it is only from a human standpoint, because, you know, the Bible speaks a lot about it. It is the most discussed attribute of God in the Bible. Of all the things the Bible says about God, the adjective, a holy God, is affixed to His name more than any other description. More than loving, more than merciful, more than faithful, is that God is a holy God, and, and lest you think that's just an Old Testament emphasis and not a New Testament emphasis, let me remind you that when Jesus Himself taught us to address the Father, we are to remember that He is holy. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. So it is to be a focus, and emphasis, of the New Testament believer's relationship to His Father in heaven. Also... Holy is the principal adjective, is it not, for the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit? He's not addressed principally as the loving Spirit or the eternal Spirit or the peaceful Spirit, but again, the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. You and I can't pick and choose which attributes we like and dump the rest. Oh, I like this aspect about God. That's cool. That makes me feel good but I won't at all deal or study or respond to that attribute. You've got to take God as He is. You can reject God wholeheartedly, but you can't change Him. Yet, that seems to be the focus and emphasis in modern worship. I shall create God in my image after my likeness. Over in Kyoto, Japan, there is an interesting temple It is a Buddhist shrine. It's called the Temple of 1,000 Buddhas. And there are, I hear, 1,000 different likenesses of Buddha, each a little different from the other. The idea is the worshiper goes into the temple, looks all around at all the different faces of Buddha, finds one that resembles himself or herself most closely, and worships that. Sound familiar? Many people want the pleasurable journey through themselves. But tonight, we see that the most satisfying journey is actually through the nature and character of the true God. I have divided up, and you have it in your outline, the study into four sections. Isaiah's encounter with the Holy God. He is first captivated. By something that he sees, something going on around him, he is convicted by what he sees that's going on around him. He is cleansed in the midst of that vision, and then finally he is commissioned. Let's go back and look at the first couple of verses. Let's see what captivated him. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe or his long flowing garments filled the temple. Notice it says it was the year King Uzziah died. That's what's going on around him nationally. The year is 739 B.C., if you care to note that. It's very important. You may remember that Uzziah, when he became king, was a teenager. In fact, he was 16 years old when he began to reign. Can you imagine? You're 16 year old reigning over a nation. What is remarkable is that this guy became a pretty good king. He reigned 52 long, prosperous years. He expanded the borders of Israel. He successfully campaigned against the enemies and brought a level of security so that he became one of Israel's best kings starting at 16 and for 52 years till this year, 739. He did a good job. He wasn't perfect. At the end, he rebelled. But he was good. And perhaps Isaiah, along with the other people, saw this good, godly king as the reason God restrained judgment. You see, just north, a few miles, in the nation of Israel, the Assyrians had already swooped down and taken captive the northern kingdom. Now they're threatening the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, where Isaiah is. And maybe Isaiah and the other people in Israel are going, Oh no, good King Uzziah is off the throne. The throne is empty. Who will lead us? Well, in the year that King Uzziah died and got off the throne because of death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. High and lifted up. Boy, this is something we tend to forget too often. As we look around at our world, we forget God's still on the throne in the midst of this bizarre world we live in. We look around and we hear the news and we see the reports on television of terrorism and snipers and possible war. And we think, what is going on? Does God see? Does God care? Yes, God is still on the throne. He is still in charge. If you fail to see that, you will be a very depressed individual. A week of watching CNN is enough to just dislodge any hope and confidence in the future. Bad news all week long. And this is the value of coming to church every week. This is the value of coming into a place of worship and singing songs to God and being reminded, oh, oh, right, God is still up there on the throne. He is not dislodged from his power base. So Isaiah, weighed down by life, weighed down by the circumstances, God gets his attention and reminds him, hey, buddy, remember me, God? I'm on the throne. Forget Uzziah trust me don't trust human leadership trust me don't worry about who won the election trust me have you ever been somewhere and you're there but you're preoccupied you're you're not really paying attention <laughs> that could be happening right now <laughs> A few years back, I flew into Charlotte, North Carolina, and drove a rental car to Boone. And I was very distracted looking at a map of, how do I get there? It was for a board meeting with Samaritan's Purse. And I'm looking around at the countryside, looking at road signs, looking at the map, and I completely forgot. I didn't notice how fast I was going. Until I saw lights in the rearview mirror. <laughs> a police officer came to my car. I rolled down the window and goes, you know, Sonny, you're doing pretty fast, speed. (laughs) Yes, officer, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you a ticket. And he did. I was preoccupied. That interruption got my attention. Stopped my distraction. I behaved all week. (laughs) Isaiah's distracted. The throne is vacant. The Assyrians are coming. God is on the throne. Notice this vision. Something he saw, something he heard, and something he felt. He saw the Lord. Above it stood the throne seraphim. Each one had six wings. Wild. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts... Imagine that. Of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw a vision of God's majesty. Isaiah heard an anthem of God's holiness and Isaiah felt the thunder of the voice of the one who cried out. The angel, the seraphim, literally the burning one, cried out, Without stopping, incessantly is the idea in the Hebrew language. He just kept crying it out. Holy, holy, holy. This is called the trihagion. Three utterances of the term holy by this angel. He felt it. He heard it. It was loud. It moved him. You know, I read this. I, if you don't like loud music, you might want to bring earplugs to heaven. Because this crying out, this anthem is so loud the house shakes. Talk about a (laughs) subwoofer. I want you to notice what these angels are saying. They're not saying, Faithful, faithful, faithful is the Lord God Almighty. But He is. But they're not saying, Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God, though He is or eternal, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. But there is one key characteristic they are honing in on, which causes the reaction. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. What does that mean, holy? It sounds pretty churchy, doesn't it? be honest for some it sounds pretty boring holy i have to be holy it sounds so outdated medieval stained glass long robes ooh some of us think cs lewis said how little do people know who think that holiness is dull when i when one meets the real thing it is irresistible And then he goes on, If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted before the year's end? Holy, holy, holy. Of all of God's attributes, and I think of all of them that I can think of, this is the most misconstrued attribute of God, His holiness. And here's why. Because generally, from a human perspective, we grade people with a little tacit understanding, a little scale in our heads of somebody holy, holier, holiest. We might begin at the lowest level, the lowest scale of society, and we might put in that uh, category criminals, perverts. Um, We might say they have a holiness percentage of zero to maybe five percent. Some would even put lawyers in that category. Some would put ministers in that category. Then above that is another scale. This is the average people. This is where most people hang out. Uh, they're a little better than the lowest scale. These are the, the moms and dads, husbands and wives, business owners, blue-collar workers. And we might grade them as anywhere between a, a high teen to 30 or 40% holy. Then there's the above-average individual. The humanitarian, the philanthropist. Some would put judges in there if they're righteous. Surfers, perhaps. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> People that we would say, now they're just a little better than most. They're the saints of our culture. And then we go all the way up to 100%. Nobody can hang out in that category but God. He is 100% holy. And because he's the only guy that gets 100% on the test, he has the right to grade everybody else. But you see, that's a misconception. Because you could pile up all of the holiness and righteousness and goodness of all people of all times in one big pile. And it would be a speck of dust compared to the holiness of God. And here's why. Because God is in a completely different category. God is holy, other. God is unmatched. God is set apart. Which is, by the way, the first principal meaning of the word holy. To be different. Set apart for special use only. I would like you to keep a marker here and go back to Exodus. Find that book. It's the second book in your Bible. There's a passage in Isaiah 40 that just begs to be read to understand this basic idea of holiness. Exodus chapter 40. I'll give you a second and we'll jump in. Let's just read a few verses. And we'll begin down at verse 8 of Exodus 40. By the way, if you're in Exodus, 40 is the last chapter. So if you're in Leviticus, turn left. You'll be there. (laughs) Verse 8, You shall set up the court all around. This is the tabernacle. And hang up the screen on the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow or make holy and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering, and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the labor and its base, and consecrate it. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest and you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics so Moses was told to sanctify the altar the utensils the garments and called them holy stop to call garments utensils and an altar holy nothing changed in the intrinsic worth or value of the utensils or the altar The altar didn't glow suddenly. The basin didn't gleam a little brighter because it was designated as holy. The basic idea is that here's stuff that is set apart to only be used for the sacrifice of God in the tabernacle. These utensils are only to be used in the tabernacle. This altar is only to be used for sacrifice. It is set apart. It is wholly other. It is different from all the other utensils and stuff that goes on in your life. Now, we do this at home and I'm going to take down the definition a little bit. You have holy stuff in your home. What I mean by that is some of you have pitchers, containers, and it's the juice pitcher. You could hold milk in it. You could hold water. you hold anything, but you designate it as this is for orange juice. You put juice in there long enough, and it sort of stains it, and it has its own feel and smell, and that's what you do with it. It is a holy pitcher. You have set it apart for a special use. So, to call somebody a saint doesn't mean they glow in the dark or they have big halos or they walk on water or are 100% or 85%. It simply means they have been set apart for God's purpose, His use. Well, we talk here about the holiness of God. Go back now to Isaiah. Holy, 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 the anthem cries, is the Lord of hosts. Now we know what that means. God is different. He is set apart from his creation. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other, unmatched, unique. Now this is what the New Age forgets. This is what Hinduism forgets. This is what virtually every modern religion forgets about God. What they will say is, God is a part of His creation, we're part of God and God is part of us, the door is God, the trees are God, the sky is God. That is baloney. God is separate from His creation, He is distinct from His creation, He is wholly other. We mentioned the tabernacle. I'm not going to have you turn to portions of the Old Testament, but... The tabernacle taught a twofold lesson. You know what that is. That's that tent structure out in the desert that they kept with them for years. The tabernacle taught two truths that are sort of at tension with each other. Truth number one, the tabernacle showed that God wanted to be with his people, he was available. We might say God is imminent, he wants to fellowship with us. But the other truth the tabernacle shows us is that God is separated from His people because of His utter holiness and man's utter sinfulness. Example. If it was a nice sunny Saturday and you said, I'm going to go hang out with God. I'm going to barge into the tabernacle and just talk to God freely. You would die. God would strike you dead. In fact, there was only one guy, right? who could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest, only after he sacrificed for himself and cleansed himself. So God wanted a fellowship with his people, but there was this separation. Now this is different from pagan worship. If you were a Greek, you could walk into any Greek pagan temple in Greece and walk right into it and pray before any statue you felt like anytime. If you were a Roman, you could walk into any Roman temple Cultural, religious place of worship and do the same. But if you were a Jew, you can't just barge in and hang out with God. You have to be a priest. Moreover, you have to be a high priest. Moreover, it has to be once a year. And then there's veils, right, that separated these sections. There was a veil that was thick between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. There was a second veil between the Holy Place and the outer courtyard. And there was a third veil between the outer courtyard and the general housing tent development of the nation of Israel. So you were stopped at each place. And if you ignored those barriers, you were treated as an intruder and the wrath of God would come upon that individual. Now, until we recognize this, until we recognize the pure holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of humanity, we will never appreciate the cross, ever. We'll never appreciate the need for atonement by Christ on the cross. Oh, we'll hear about it. Jesus died on the cross. God loves you. Yawn until we understand this. And Isaiah does. Because look at verse 5. After he is captivated, he is convicted. So I said, Woe is me. And this isn't like a Southern California, Whoa, dude. This is like, I am undone, man. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The New English Bible translates the first part of that. There's no hope for me. I'm doomed. The New Living Translation. My destruction is sealed. Question. Why did Isaiah, a prophet, who is like you know, in the above average category. He's like a saint. Why would he have to say that? I mean, Isaiah just had an experience that very few people ever have. He could write a book. My vision of God. He could go on a speaking tour. He could go on Christian television. He could do anything with that, but he doesn't. It doesn't puff him up. It humbles him. And he says, woe is me. Why? Because in seeing God, he saw himself. And this produced conviction of sin. Here's the point I want to make. Show me a person who is filled with pride, and I'll show you a person who has never encountered God. You can't encounter God and remain prideful. It humbles you. Have you ever stood next to somebody in a song service who has a beautiful voice? And you couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, perhaps? And when you hear that beautiful voice, you feel like, I don't want to ruin this. I want to sing to the Lord, but I'm going to do it in my heart. It says that, in your heart, making melody to the Lord. That's the best thing I'm going to produce right now. Because my voice compared to that, that's so beautiful. Or m- maybe you attended a function and you didn't get the dress instructions correctly. You thought everybody was going to be casual. You come there, tuxedos, evening dresses. You have blue jeans on and a t-shirt. You don't feel quite right. Now here, even a prophet of God, next to God's purity, has to cry, Whoa, is me. Max Lucado tells us why. He says, You don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein just because you can write H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect one. Here's an encounter with the holy God that evokes a conviction. Woe is me. Like Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, what? Mourn. And that's what Isaiah is doing. I could give you a couple more examples, and I will. How about Job? He was Mr. Holy, right? Wasn't Job the guy that God said to Satan, Hey, I got a guy that is the holiest guy on earth. Job eight. There's nobody like him in the whole world. So if anybody could stand before the holiness of God, it was Job, right? He's the best God said he had on earth. Yet we know Job suffered, and he questioned. And at the end of Job's period of suffering, God asks him several questions to show his holiness and glory and majesty. Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I know some of you are thinking, that's low self-esteem. You better believe it. And it's one of the healthiest things you can have in the midst of perfection. How about Peter? Mr. Fisherman, Mr. Cool. Tell Jesus gets in the boat one day and He goes, Depart from Me, I'm a sinful man. After that great catch of fish. Not, Well, Lord, uh, I'm an expert. But depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Or how about John in the book of Revelation? He sees a vision of the glorified Christ, and I fell before him as a dead man. In every case, when somebody is face to face with God's holiness, there is conviction of sin. Why? For this reason. Because holiness can never coexist with unholiness. God must either destroy the unholy or... Do something, purge the sin, fix the problem. Now, if this is said for the very best people, the righteous people, the saints like Isaiah and Job and Peter and John, what about the agnostic? The atheist? The the lower scale, we would say in our minds. Even the very best has to say, ugh about himself. But look at verse 6 and 7. This is the third part. He is cleansed. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having... and It does sound bizarre, I admit. One of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar and he touched my mouth with it. Oof. That doesn't sound pleasant. A hot briquette. Psst. It's like the first time I ever had green chili. <laughs> wow, that's hot. But he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. This is symbolic. That there's a coal in the altar of sacrifice in the outer courtyard. Probably that's where the coal was taken. There was a fire that never went out. Sacrifices were being offered there to cleanse people from sin. So symbolically a coal taken from off the altar touching his lips was important because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a generation of people with unclean lips. So God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to cleanse this problem. And he touched my lips. And the angel said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. God cleanses him. Why? Again, let me remind you. Holiness can never coexist with unholiness. Either that which is holy must destroy the unholy or else purge the sin, which he does. Now listen carefully. This is the whole story of the Bible. This is the whole story of the Bible. Let's go back to the tabernacle again. The tabernacle taught there's a great gulf of separation between holy God and sinful men. There's courts and there's veils and everything else. But it also taught that the gulf can be taken away by sacrifice. So people brought lambs, innocent victims, animals were killed. Their blood was poured out and the sin of the person was transferred to the animal Literally, the animal died in the place of the worshiper. Even the high priest himself had to have his sins cleansed this way. And that's the meaning of the cross. The true atonement that came through Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. At the moment Jesus died and was separated judicially from the Father, remember what God did? He tore something. A veil in the temple. He tore it in two from top to bottom. God was making a statement. He was saying the way to the holy of holies to which everybody was kept out of is now open. Anyone in my son's covenant of blood who trusts him can have fellowship with me any time. It's open. Come in, God invited the world. That's the glorious message of the gospel. God does something about the gulf, the separation, and the sin. So what is God's solution to unholy man? He declares the unholy as being holy. And says, Come on in. Isaiah understood this. He understood there was a gulf between himself and God. So he cries out, Woe is me. But now he understands that the gulf is bridged by God's love and forgiveness. We just hit on something, didn't we? We hit on this truth. The reason... You can have a lot of people going to church every single week in our country, week after week, month after month, year after year, without any change at all in their lives, is because they do not understand this great gulf between God's utter holiness and man's utter sinfulness. I've even heard people pray, Well, God, if I've sinned, I'm sorry. If? If? I mean, if you sin, why even bother praying about it? Since you sinned, since I sinned. That's why we have to confess our sins. We have to fess up, right? First John nine. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I've told you before about the story of the great Prussian king, Frederick the Great, who was touring a Berlin prison. All the prisoners came in and got on their knees claiming their innocence. I don't deserve to be here. I should be set free. I didn't do anything wrong. The great king went to one other person and said, and I suppose you're going to tell me you're innocent too. That last man said, oh no, I deserve all of the punishment that I get in this prison. I am guilty of the crime charged. The king heard that. What a different anthem by this one criminal. And then he smiled And he said to the warden, Quickly, release this rascal before he corrupts all of these fine, innocent people. (laughs) He confessed his sin, and he was forgiven. We're going to close with just reading these next few verses. It says in verse 8, and this is the final phase of this, this prophet is commissioned now. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? This is all part of the same vision. And who will go for us? And then I said, The prophet, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And the rest of the chapter is the message he was to give. Tonight God is looking for volunteers, willing representatives. He doesn't want forced labor. Willing representatives who have been cleansed and will willingly go for him. Once cleansed by holy God. I was in a store some time back, and somebody recognized me. I go, Hey, Pastor Skip. I said, Hey, God bless you. I was in line, and a woman in front of me heard the conversation. She turned around, and she goes, Are you a minister? I said, Yes, I am. And she said, Why? <laughs> like, Man. Who coerced you? Who held a gun to your head? And she was surprised when I said, It's an addiction. (laughs) God is looking for willing servants. And He gets a hold of Isaiah. Here's a beautiful part of the story. God takes a cleansed sinner and sends him to a corrupt nation. In fact, the whole reason, I think, for the vision of what we just read is so that God could use this guy effectively now that he's cleansed. God wanted Isaiah to be holy, holy. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, H-O-L-Y. Completely given over to God. Completely set apart for his use. And he was now at this point. God wants to make you holy, holy. Completely His, given over to his use. What did God say in Leviticus 11? He introduced himself and he said, I am God, your God, who is holy. Therefore, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the mandate of Holy God is he says, be holy for, not be holy exactly like I am holy. Nobody could do that. Nobody can reach 100%. Be holy for I am holy. Now, how do you know if you're holy? I'll give you two easy ways. It's not if you wear long robes or have a halo. Number one, you know you're holy when you hate sin. You hate sin. Number two, you know you're holy when you love righteousness. Simple, isn't it? Hate sin, love righteousness. Now, naturally, we don't hate sin. We love sin. We abhor giving it up. Why should we hate sin? That's what we need to learn to do. How do you do that? By looking at what sin did to the Savior you and I love. Put Him on the cross. It caused him to bleed to death. A sinless, perfect God bled. That's what my sin did to him. I should hate it for that reason. I should also hate sin because look around. Look what it does to everybody else. Look what it does to marriages. Look what it does to a nation. Look what it does to individuals. Ruins people. We know we're holy when we hate sin and we love righteousness. And that's why there's a struggle inside the Christian Because the flesh and the spirit war. Well, let me just close by saying, make your life count for something. Make your life count for something. How do you do that? By seeing yourself for who you really are. That's the first step. And how do you see yourself for who you really are? By seeing God for who He really is. Exactly in His perfect holiness, which causes us to go, poor in spirit, mourn, woe is me. And then we discover what God can do with this, as God works in us to cleanse us and through us to use us. Nancy Jones was a spinster in a Midwestern community. Nobody really knew much about her, and when she died, it was an enigma because the editor of the local paper was told to write some kind of announcement in the newspaper and something for her gravestone. Nobody really knew Nancy Jones all that well. The editor didn't know what to write. This lady didn't do much, either good or bad. So he decided to pawn off the job of writing the little epithet to the first editor that would come in the newspaper office that day. 8.30 a.m., the sports editor walked in he said it's your job you have to write the obituary and so the sports editor wrote here lies the bones of nancy jones her life it held no terrors she lived an old maid she died an old maid no hits no runs no errors how would your life how would you like to have your life read No hits, no runs, no errors. We don't know really what he or she did. Lived and died an old maid. Make your life count for something. God would say, whom will I send? Here I am, Lord, send me. That's how you make your life count, but it begins by seeing yourself, and then you see God, and then you discover in that lowly place how God can cleanse you and use you. God's holiness and God's love are partners. God's holiness shows the gulf. God's love shows the bridge. And tonight, that bridge is extended to you if you want it. If you're willing to take Christ and the atoning blood that He shed for you on Calvary's cross and say yes to God, He will wipe away all of your sins bridge the gap, rip the veil, and say, hang out with me. Heavenly Father, as we close tonight, that's what we pray for. We pray we might enjoy fellowship with You, the Holy God, and by that fellowship be transformed, as was Isaiah. In seeing You, we must see ourselves. In seeing ourselves in the light of You, We must say what Isaiah, Job, Peter, John, Habakkuk, and others declared. But then comes the cleansing, and then comes the commissioning. You call us, you convict us, you cleanse us, you qualify us to do what you told us to do. Lord, it all begins with that poverty of spirit. We enter the kingdom by bending low, by mourning, by asking you, holy God, for forgiveness. And we know it can be guaranteed, not by our works, not by the blood of a lamb or a goat, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb that takes away, not covers, takes away the sins of the world. Take away more tonight. Cleanse more tonight. Bring more into your kingdom tonight. 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 More into your kingdom tonight.